I'm so excited. I'm excited uh, uh, that Jersey Village is watching this. I'm excited that y'all are here live. I'm excited for the people who are watching it on the Internet. I cannot thank you enough for the encouraging emails you've been sending me about this series that we're in. I love to teach this series. It's it's one of my favorite ones I've written. Of course, that's the joy of getting to teach. I only teach stuff I like, you know, and you guys are great. If you like it, you show up. If you don't, you go find some other class. I'm fine with that. And uh, but this has been a lot of fun. Scott, remind me to tell you about the piano. And so in the process of this, what we're doing is we're walking that long and winding road through the Old Testament as it speaks about the Messiah. And the Old Testament does it from the very beginning. We see, and it's not surprising from the very beginning, I might add, because Paul says it was already in God's mind before creation. And so certainly God has been planting the seeds and showing the foreshadowing throughout the Old Testament pages as he spoke and worked through prophets. You see, the Old Testament is not simply a, a, a book of musings by godly people. The Old Testament is a book put together by prophets, by people who heard the voice of God and became the mouthpiece or the, the speaker, if you will, for God. And so the message of the Old Testament is not just one where coincidentally these things about Jesus happen to be fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament is actually something much more. It's God's provocative way of saying, here is what I'm going to be doing even as I'm doing these things in your midst today. And so it's that message. And today we're going to start what will take us probably two weeks to do. Maybe it will take three. We'll see how far we go. But we're going to talk about Abraham. Abraham, we read about him in the book of Genesis. Now, I want to take a step back for a moment, and we need to talk about the books of the Bible. <clears throat> In the Bible, we've got it divided generally into the Old Testament and the New Testament. If we look at the Old Testament, all of the books of the Old Testament are put together in different ways, but originally these books were scrolls. These were scrolls that had been written by the prophets put together under prof prof prophetic oversight. But it's a collection of scrolls. It was not bound in a book the way that we've got it in our Bible. And so the scrolls just exist in a scroll cabinet generally. And uh, that, that's how Judaism kept track of the Word of God through its prophetic Word. Now, if we are to look at these scrolls that we call books... There are five of them that we have at the beginning of our Bible. Of course, to the extent they were scrolls to start with, they weren't in an order. You know, if you want to take Genesis and move it over to Psalms, you, you got you got to get an exacto knife or something. You got to do a tear job. Then you got to make the move, and then you got to do a splice, and you got to tape it, etc. Scrolls, it's just kind of like. Here, put this over there. Or here, put this over there. So we got to get into a, a different frame of mind and think about this a little bit differently. So if we take those first five books as a collection, they've got some names. The Hebrew name for them is the law, which in Hebrew is Torah. And so the Torah, the law, is, is one um, a label for those first five books. They're also called the books of Moses. Now that's an interesting thing and it's an appropriate thing and I want to move this around for a little bit and look at those books. But if you look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy and you think of them as books of Moses, do you realize Moses doesn't show up until Exodus? Why is Genesis one of the books of Moses? Well, some will say because he wrote it. And I think that's appropriate. There are some insertions that came later. And we'll see one of those today, assuming we've got time. And we know Moses didn't write 
all the way through to the end because he dies at the end of Deuteronomy and he didn't write his death. Um, you know, it's not the kind of thing where he's, you know, Israel leaves him on Mount Nebo and he says, come back. Uh, uh, I'm going to, I got a few more words to finish. And then, uh, you know, it's, did y'all ever watch Sanford and Son? You know, I'm coming to see you. You know, he's, oh, I'm coming to see you. And he's down there on his last, you know, that, what, what was her name? Elizabeth. I'm coming to see you, Elizabeth. And he's writing his last words. And Moses died. Oh, you know, and then the Israelites came back over the Jordan to grab the book of Deuteronomy so they'd have it finished by Moses. So we know that, but we also know that he wrote a bunch of it because it says so. But these are not just the books of Moses because of authorship. They're the books of Moses because they're about Moses. He shows up in Exodus chapter 1, 2. I guess Exodus chapter 2. And then he's there till the end. And he's the central character. But if that's the case, then what's the book of Genesis doing there? Easy. The book of Genesis, if we just pull it out and look at it for a moment, it's the book that gives the setup. It's the book that, that itself explains the setting and the things that you need to know to understand Moses. See, Genesis comes from a Greek word that means beginning. Or it means origin. The Hebrew word for the book of Genesis is Bareshit, which means in the beginning. Hebrew books, they generally will just use the first name of the scroll. The first word in the scroll is the name of the book. And so the first word in the Genesis scroll is Bareshit. Bareshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And that's the way it begins. And that's what Genesis means. We use the word sort of that way as an origin or a beginning. So if we're going to understand the story of Moses, we need to understand the beginnings that set that up. Now the first 11 chapters or so of Genesis go back so far in time and memory that they would have to have some great deal of revelation to Moses, for Moses to have written it down. But once we get to the story of Abraham, which starts in Genesis 11, we get into what we would call more modern history. It's still very old for us. I put Abraham around 2000 BC. So, I mean, it's, that's older than, than like my grandmother. But, side note, mom told me the other day, we're getting to a strange place in life where she's suddenly becoming younger than I am. Uh, and we have to figure out a way around that if we can explain it to people. But generally, Lanier women do not age. They get younger. But uh, uh, anyway, I mean, this is back 2000 B.C. So this is rather old. But it's still something that's in recognizable history for Abraham and his day. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to start class this morning by talking about this from the opposite end. I want to start class talking about this starting from the Gospel of John chapter 8. Because in John chapter 8, Jesus hearkens back to Genesis in an interchange he has with some Jews who are struggling to understand him. And it doesn't make sense to us unless we understand the setting in Genesis and the very things that we're teaching in this series going back two weeks to when I started out by saying, let's go to the creation story and working up through this. So if we take John 8.31 and we take just a moment, we're going to see how Jesus, this, this is really, really cool stuff. Okay, so John 8.31, 
This is Jesus, and he's speaking to, to some Jewish believers, um, but, but they don't understand, and they turn on Jesus. They're, they're not deeply rooted believers. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Now, that whole concept, abide, dwell, live in my word, in what I'm saying, in what I teach, in who I am. Remember John, he starts out, Jesus is the word. So Jesus says, if you'll abide and you'll stay in me, you're truly my disciples. This isn't just simply, hey, we believe Jesus is something special, which is is where these people were. But these people weren't ready to abide in that. They weren't ready to stay in that. They weren't truly his disciples in that sense. Jesus says, if you'll do that, you'll know the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus. And the truth will set you free. Now, I want to tell you, that's a word or phrase that only has meaning if you understand the books of Moses, all five. You'll only understand this passage if you understand all five books of Moses, starting with Genesis and where we were two weeks ago, that God says there's a problem here. Humanity has chosen to rebel against God and embrace sin and death. And we're, 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 we're without any hope at all, absent someone who can set us free from that law that says you sin, you die. There is a law that says you sin, you die. And we're all in trouble if someone cannot set us free from that. But if we know Jesus the truth, we abide in him, he will set us free from the law of sin and death, from the curse of the Garden of Eden and the rebellion of humanity. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at the response of the people. So the people said, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you'll become free? We're free. Well, how much reading did they do in the books of Moses? We've never been enslaved to anyone? Did they not see the movie? <laughs> Let my people go? Yes, they were enslaved to Pharaoh. Jesus answered and said to them, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is talking about a slave. He's taking them back to the garden. He's taking them back to the bondage, what Paul calls in Romans 8, the law of sin and death. And he says, if you practice sin, you're a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free from this slavery to sin, then you're really going to be free. I know you're offspring of Abraham. I'm not an idiot. Jesus, Jesus is Jewish too. I know you're offspring of Abraham. But you're seeking to kill me because, and he's speaking you there in the sense of beyond this community of people there, because my words find no place in you. I'm telling you what I've seen with my father, what, I, what you've heard from your father is what you do. Now look what they say. They say, I'm going orange for them. Abraham is our father. Jesus says, look, I'm showing you what I've seen with my father. I'm, I'm telling you what I've seen with my father. You're doing what you've heard from your father. Well, Abraham's our father. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing 
the works Abraham did. Hold on, let me adjust this a little bit. You would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your, your father did. Now, here's their thought. They're still thinking in the moment at this point. They're thinking, oh, our father. They, he's thinking about, huh, huh, huh. So their reply is, look, we're not born of sexual immorality. We really are children of Abraham. And if you want to trump that, we have one father, God. Jesus says to him, if God were your father, you'd love me. Because I came from God. I'm here. I didn't come of my own accord. He sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't bear to hear it. You're of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He caused the death of Adam and Eve. He incites Cain to kill Abel. He's a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. He said you wouldn't get hurt if you ate of the tree. He said it'd make you like God. He's lied and killed from the get-go. Those of you who watch this who are not from Texas, look that word up. It's really good. <laughs> when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar. And he's the father of lies. That's why I'm telling you the truth, but you don't believe me. It's the truth that sets you free. It's the lie that leads you to slavery and sin. Which one of you convicts me of sin? What did I do? I'm telling the truth. Why don't you believe me? And the Jews said, okay, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? The, a Samaritan is about as filthy a way to... I mean, that, that's like a very derogatory term in their day. Okay? They're calling him a Samaritan. That's... that's, that's um, I mean, that is on the level of words that we don't use, much less in church. And they call him that, and then they, on top of that, say, and you're the one who's possessed. And Jesus says, I don't, I, I don't have a demon. I'm just honoring my father, and you're dishonoring me. I, I don't care. I'm not seeking my own glory. There's one who seeks it, but he's the judge. If anyone will keep my word, he'll never see death. It's that simple. Jews said, well, now we know you have a demon. See, Abraham, he died. The prophets, they died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, you'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Are you greater than the prophets who died? Who do you think you are? And Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You don't know him. I do. If I said I did not know him, that would make me a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced. Look at this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said, you aren't even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him and Jesus went and hid. Before 
Abraham was, I am. And over that, they're going to stone Jesus. Why? What's going on here? It all goes back to Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses says to... God's called Moses. Well, God appears in a burning bush, first of all. And Moses sees the bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. So he starts to head over towards it. And when he starts getting close, he hears a voice from the bush. Says, stop, don't come any closer. You're on holy ground, take your sandals off. And Moses takes off his sandals. And God says, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've seen that they're enslaved. Jews didn't think they were enslaved at any point in history. Wrong bongo. He says, right here, they're enslaved. And Moses, I want you to go set them free. Lead them out of freedom. Lead them to freedom. And Moses hymns and haws and not me. Gee, I don't have it, etc., etc. But in the process of the confrontation, one of the things Moses says to them is, look, the people are going to want to know your name. What's your name? You know, I can't just go say God. The Egyptians had over a hundred gods. And the gods' names generally associated with either what they were or what they did. So Ra is the sun, but he's also the sun god. Um, Nut is uh, uh, the, the, the expanse, the heavens, but also is the heavens God. And so the names were associated with what their territory or what their reign was or their character. All right? So when Moses says, they're going to want to know your name, are you the God of Sinai? Because he's on Mount Sinai. Are you God of the burning bush? You're the God of flame. What is your name? And this is the confrontation. So verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say, hey, the God of your father sent me to you. Because that's, that's how he's already identified himself to Moses. See, he's already told Moses, he said, don't come near, take your sandals off, the place you're standing on holy ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he doesn't give his name. So Moses says, if I come to God and say, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what's his name? What am I supposed to tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, the I am in verse 14 are four letters in Hebrew. I am in Exodus 3, 14. Whoops. are four letters. It is the Hebrew letter Y, Yod. That's a English. The Hebrew would be a Yod. The, Eng the Hebrew letter for an H, which is a He. The Hebrew letter for a Vav, or, whoops, uh, put the Hebrew up there, which is a W, pronounced, it's a German W, like a V. And the Hebrew letter H. Hey. So it is Y H W H. If you're reading that way. But if we turn it and want to read it in English. It is what we would say Yahweh. Or Yahweh. So that's what I am is. If you want to put I am into Greek. You would write it ego. Um, ego actually is a long O, sorry. Amy. 
Ego me in Greek means I am. Now that's a very holy name all of a sudden. And that's the name that God says in the Ten Commandments not to take it in vain. You take the name of the Lord your God in vain, you get stoned. So good Jews at the time of Jesus, they wouldn't say the name of God. A good, a, a practicing Jew today generally will not. When, when a practicing Jew today is reading through Old Testament scriptures and they come across the name of God, they just substitute in the Hebrew word for the name. Knowing you'll understand, they're not about to read it. So they'll say Hashem. Or they might use the generic Adonai, which are Adonai if they use Ashkenazi pronunciation, which means Lord. But if we go back to the Elmo, you can see this in the time of Jesus is already part and parcel of Judaism by looking at the Dead Sea Scroll fragments. So I brought you two pictures today from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls are Jewish writings that we have from the time of Jesus and even before. And so what I've put up here on the left is from a commentary on Habakkuk. It's called the Habakkuk Pesher. And it's the first two chapters of Habakkuk and commentaries from the community at Qumran about what they thought that Habakkuk was prophetically saying. It's written in the script that the, it's called an Aramaic script. It's the script that they would use to write Hebrew at the time of Jesus. Actually, this is probably dated to about 25 to 50 years before the birth of Jesus. But if you'll look, I've got three lines of it up here on the left. And those letters may look weird to you, but if you look at the four letters on the second line, that middle line, that are furthest to the left, I don't know if you can tell it or not, but they're in a complete different script than all the rest of that manuscript. They're in a script that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. They're in a script that predates even the Babylonian captivity. They've used a script that scholars today call Paleo-Hebrew or Early Hebrew. And the reason why is those four letters is the name of God. yod Hey, vav Hey, Yahweh. And so they would not even write it in the pagan script of the day. They would write everything else. But when they got to the name of God, they would write it special. Now another Dead Sea Scroll that I've got on the right is from the community discipline scroll. It's the rule of the community. And it's how they lived and what they lived by. And it quotes scriptures in various places. And where they've got a passage where they need to say the name of God, yod Hey vav Hey, I am... In Hebrew, look at it. It's four dots. There's a rip in the page, so it looks like three dots and two half dots. That's two half dots merge. Four dots. They won't even write the letters. The name of God is not to be said. To say it is to take, take it in vain. It's to be worthy of stoning. But Jesus says... In John chapter 8, before Abraham was, Yahweh, Jesus is saying, hey, don't tell me I'm only 50 years old. Before Abraham was, Yahweh God was. And that Jesus would even say the name caused them to pick up stones to stone him. But Jesus was right to say the name. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, Jesus is, is right. You can see the name there. They won't say it. They won't write it. They won't say it. Yahweh, the name of God. I am who I am. But before Abraham, I am. Let's go back to Genesis chapter eleven twenty seven. That's where we start the story of Abraham. 
Genesis 11:27. We've just finished the Tower of Babel, and now we're moving into modern history. This says Toledot in the Hebrew, which means uh, what follows are the generations or the 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 story, the the lineage of Terah. Now Terah fathers Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathers Lot. Haran dies in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, by the way, the Chaldeans do not enter the scene for about 1,400 years. And that's one of the later Hebrew writers who's keeping the scrolls. There were so many different towns and cities named Ur He wanted to make sure that the readers understood which one was Abraham's Ur. And that's why I say we know that later prophets worked through these scrolls in a way to keep them clear for the readers and clear for us today. So we know which Ur it is, Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, this is an interesting setup. Oh, let's finish this. He died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur. So here's what we've got happening here. You've got the dad, and the dad is Terah. And you've got to figure that they probably list the children's, the son's names in birth order. So you've got Abram as one of his children. In addition, you've got Abram's brother, who is Nahor. And then you've got the younger brother, who is Haran means moon, by the way. So Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran has a son, and he names him Lot. And then Haran dies, we're told, in the presence of his father. Do you know what that means? It means he was a young man and his dad was still alive. So Haran's gone, and the dad as the patriarch is in charge of Lot, and he takes him on as his own son. So... Terah, now, by the way, the name of Abram's wife was Sarah, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, Haran's, the father of Milcah and Iscah, and Sarah was barren. She doesn't have a child. So Abram is childless. Terah takes Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son's Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur. They came to place called Haran. It's a prominent name. It just means moon. And they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he dies in Haran. Now once he's dead, who's the father of the clan? Abram. Lot's fatherless. Abram doesn't have any children. Nahor's got like eight, I think, if I remember right. Lot becomes like a son to Abram. And so Abram takes care of Lot, and he's his mentor. He's the father figure. He's the patriarch. So God says to Abram, but look at verse 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, see how Lord is all capital letters, just a large capital and smaller capitals? Do you know why? You remember why? Because that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. And that's how the Bible translators tell us that it's the name of God. If you had a King James Version, they did it by making up the name Jehovah, which is J instead of Y, H, V instead of W, and H, and then just adding vowels. So Jehovah, or Yahweh, said to Abraham, Jesus said before Abraham, Yahweh. Yah, we got it here. Not to mention the fact Yahweh goes all the way back to Genesis 2, With Adam and Eve. Yahweh says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a very different narrative than what we'd been getting in Genesis before this. I mean, God made things and they were good, very good. 
But once sin entered the picture, it's curse after curse after curse. God curses the serpent. God curses the land. God tells Adam and Eve, this is bad stuff for you. You're going to have pain through childbirth. You're going to have to work in the thorns and the thistles to earn a living. You've got curses at the flood. You've got curses at the Tower of Babel. You've got curses after the flood with Noah's sons. So it's, 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 it's bad, 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 bad. And like a light goes off into a dark room, all of a sudden with Abram, the story changes. And in Abram, it's not just a blessing for him, but it's a blessing that's going to go to all the nations. And here you see that star of Bethlehem is already shining forth prophetically through Abraham though his name is still Abram at this point. And through him, there's going to be blessing for all people. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him. And Lot went with him. Lot was his responsibility, Abram's responsibility. So they go and uh, they get to, to the land that is promised to Abraham and his descendants by God. And a famine sets in. So during the famine, they go down to Egypt. They come back from Egypt. And now remember, these are nomads, for lack of a better way of saying it. They're Bedouins. They've got their tents and their entourage, but they're goat herders and such. And so they move their flocks around to where the food is. There's been a famine in, e in uh, the, the promised land in Canaan. So they've gone down to Egypt. They come back up. You're a shepherd. You're in charge of Lot's sheep, Abraham's sheep. What are you going to fight over when you get back to Cana? You want the best land. You know what a famine can do. We'd call that Depression-era mentality. Some of you remember what a Depression-era mentality means. Some of you are way too young. Do you even know what the Depression was? Okay, good. There were people who grew up in the Depression including my grandparents, who would not let anything go to waste. Right? And we call that depression era. And I can remember the first time my grandfather sitting there and, and he's bought me dinner at some restaurant, which probably like, I don't know, chicken fingers and french fries. And I didn't eat all my food. And he says, we're not leaving. I said, I'm ready to go. No, you hadn't finished. I said, well, I'm full. It doesn't matter. And that's, I think, the first time I got the people are starving in India speech. I'm sitting there thinking, give me an envelope. I'll mail them my chicken strip. But, I mean, that's the mentality. And so you've got that. So they go back and they're fighting over who's getting the best land for the flocks. And Abram says to his nephew, look, I'm responsible for you. I'm the patriarch. He could say, so go and earn your living among the stuff over there. I'm taking the good land for me. And when I'm dead, you can have the choice land for yourself. But no, not Abraham. He says, Lot, this isn't worth fighting about, Son, you pick the land you want and you take it. So you know what Lot does? He takes the best. Stupid, stupid, stupid boy. Do you know why? Everybody wants the best. The best is what all the f warlords are going to come fight for. And sure enough, we're just a chapter away from the warlords coming in saying, we want this land. They call them kings. They're not kings. They're warlords. The warlords come in and they capture Lot and all of his possessions and everything else because they want the good land and the people that are there. One straggler makes it out and goes and finds Abraham and says, Look, let me tell you what's happened. These warlords descended. And Abraham comes down and he gathers up all of his men, all of the people who work in his Bedouin tribe. 
He's got like 318 of them. And he goes out and he chases down the other warlords who have Lot and his family and he defeats them and rescues the boy that's been in his care since his father died. And when, Ab- when Abram does this, after he does it and after he rescues it, he's headed back and it's in Genesis chapter 14. After his return from the beat defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, warlords, the warlord of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, we'd say Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons you keep the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to Yahweh, who is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you say, I've made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. You let them take their share but I'm not going to be enriched by you. I'm enriched by Yahweh God. He possesses heaven and earth. Yahweh God was never a God of Mount Sinai. He was never God of the burning bush. He's not God who is the heaven, who is the earth. All of those are Egyptian concepts of God or Canaanite concepts of God. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's independent. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. He's not made of it. He's not part of it. He is beyond it. See, this is all the setting for the books of Moses. But this is all the settings for you and I to understand what this life is all about. Because we all know firsthand the law of sin and death. I could tell you, don't sin anymore. Don't ever let another bad thought enter your mind. Don't ever, ever let a salacious word slip from your lips. And you're not going to be successful. Because you're bound up and you understand firsthand the law of sin and death. But a freedom and a liberty and a righteousness, that's a foreign concept that's going to need somebody to teach it to you and bring it to you. It's not coming naturally. This is the setup for us to understand why we are sold to sin. But also why we need a deliverer outside of ourselves and where God says that deliverer is going to come from and what that deliverer is going to look like. And so that's what we have here. This is another image of Jesus. And this is an image where Abram is bowing to Jesus. Jesus is the Melchizedek in this picture. Now you may be saying, Lanier, where did you get that? Well, it's in the text, especially if you read Hebrew. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Melchizedek is, comes from two Hebrew words. It comes from the word melech, which we could write as M-L-C-H or M-L-K, which means king. And it comes from the word zedek, which is Z-D-K, for lack of a better way of writing it in English, which means Righteousness. And Melech Zedek likely means my king is righteousness. Melchizedek, my king is righteousness and he's also the king of shalom. He's the king of peace. Jesus, I mean, let's just keep this going here. Let's get a clean sheet. Let me make this big enough. So we have 
Melchizedek, and we have Jesus. You with me? Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Who is the righteous one? He is the righteous one. Melchizedek, king of peace. Who's the prince of peace? You beginning to see something here? Priest. Melchizedek was priest of, well, first he brings out bread and wine. So he's going to give bread and wine to his worshipers. A supper. A supper of bread and wine. What do we call that? The Lord's Supper. All right, let's keep going. Melchizedek king brings out bread and wine. He's priest of God most high. El Elyon. Priest of God most high. And we find out Yahweh is God most high. Abraham makes that clear in a moment. So he is a priest of Yahweh. Yod hep hey. Vav, hey, I should be more Jewish and not write it. I can't get it right. Priest of Yahweh. What about, what is a priest? A priest is someone who stands between people and God. Who makes the peace for the people with God. And that's why scripture teaches Jesus is our high priest. Who makes our peace with God. Yahweh. Let's keep going. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek, whomever he is, he trumps Abraham. Abraham worships Melchizedek. Jesus says, Abraham was looking forward to my day. This is one of several places we're going to see where Abraham had the experience of understanding how God was going to be working. High priest, Abraham worships him. Now, there's a, there's a concept in Judaism here. If, uh, oh, we're running out of time. Um, in the loins of Abraham are all of his offspring. They're in his DNA. They're in his seed. So when Abraham bows down to worship Melchizedek, so does every one of his offspring. Abe worships him. Jesus is worthy of our worship. And all, every knee shall bow. I mean, may not do it in this life, But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh. It continues. Yahweh is the deliverer. Jesus is the deliverer. Abram tithes to Melchizedek, gives him a tenth of everything. We offer God our first tenth of everything. The, the, the implications are really cool. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, we can see Abraham and Melchizedek show you Jesus the Messiah. It's just a little bit veiled. But in the process of seeing that story, you've got exactly what the writer of Hebrews said that we looked at over the last two weeks. In the, ba- in the long ago days, over and over again, in different ways through the prophets, God spoke his message, one message. Just through different methods, including the encounter that Abram had with Melchizedek. And that is one of where we we further the message of Jesus. That Jesus is going to be from Abram's seed. 
That's how all of the world will be blessed. That he's going to bless the whole earth. He's not just coming to take care of Israel. That he'll be a high priest to God who will intervene on behalf of the people. That he will be a king of peace. That he will be a king of righteousness. And that he will be worshipped and blessed by the people that know who he is. And we've got all of that in that snapshot. So here are the points for home. We have chapter after chapter after chapter from Genesis 3 up to chapter 12 of curse, 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 curse. And then we have blessings. The blessings come through Abram through the promise of who Jesus will be. And Abram gets those blessings through his faithful following of the Lord. I want to follow the Lord. I want to walk in his blessings. May not be my first choice for how I'd choose to live my life. But it's the right choice. And that's what walking by faith is. It's doing what you know is right, whether you feel or want to at all. Go from your country, God said to Abram, to the land that I'll show you. This is another thing that I want to do. I want to seek out what God has planned for me. What if Abram had said no? What a different world this would be. Seek out what God has planned for you. Ask him. Lord, what do you have planned for me today? Ask Him. And then use your mind, be sensitive in your heart, and try to determine what God wants you to do. It may be nothing more than be kind. My job for you today, Mark, is to be kind. My job for you today, Mark, is to to be disciplined. Or it might be my job is for you to go out and save the world. Whatever it is, just be sensitive and seek out what God has planned for you. Last, Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. I'm going to approach God through my priest, Most High, Jesus, with graciousness and thankfulness. Next week we'll continue. We're going to talk about Abraham and the three visitors. I'm excited to talk to you about that. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus before we go? Father, uh, uh, as you have blessed your people, so in the name of Jesus, we live and exist in that blessing. And I ask you to bless and keep all who hear this message. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Bring them peace. Give them wisdom. Give them direction. Give them inspiration. Lead them where you would have them go. And help them be sensitive to it and to follow you in your mercy. Through our high priest, Jesus, who made things right with you, we pray an humble and, and thankful. Amen.